Good morning. I like stories. I like a good story. I always have. I like books. I like movies because I, I like a compelling narrative. You know, I like a nice story arc. I like the ups and downs. I like the resolution. I, I just, I like stories. Now, don't get me wrong. I can appreciate a nice action scene like, the, like any guy. I don't mind seeing stuff blow up. Lively audience. Okay, apparently you like stuff blowing up too. You're like, I'm going to make you work for it, Josh. Challenge accepted. All right. I do. I just, I like stories. And I think we like stories because there's a reason why the, the favorite Star Wars movies are four, five, and six. And they're the ones with the worst special effects because they're the ones with the best stories. We like stories. We find stories compelling. They're, I just, they connect with us. And I think true stories resonate the most. We like true stories. What's tough, though, is when you find out a true story is like not super true, like it's sort of true, it's the, it's the difference between true story and based on a true story. Because oftentimes based on a true story means super loosely based in the fact that we used a character's name whose name is Matt and that was a guy in the real story kind of thing. And it's always, it's like a, it stinks a little bit when you find out it's not totally true. My wife and I love to watch movies, and, and I think a two that stand out over the last couple years watching movies, The Butler is one, and Argo is another one. It's like true stories, and then you find out that The Butler only had one son. He didn't have two. The one that is this powerful moment when his son goes off to Vietnam, and he's killed, and it's this big, pivotal moment in the movie. Yeah, that son didn't exist. They totally made him up. And what's kind of mean is they made him up just to kill him. That's kind of mean. Or Argo, this incredible story about rescuing hostages during the, uh, the Iran hostage crisis. I mean, it's this incredible story about the CIA and these operatives going in and making this work. I mean, it's really powerful, except that that's not really how it happened. Former President Jimmy Carter said, actually, 90% of the credit goes to the Canadians. So that stings a little bit. <laughs> the trueness of a story matters to us. The trueness of a story matters to us, right? It's like when I found those things out, it's like, oh man, like I just, it's a little bit less impressive because true stories, real stories are, are compelling, are significant. And we're going to look at a story like that this morning. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's in 1 Kings 18. If you brought your Bible with you, you can, you can turn there. And I'm going to set this up a little bit. This is at a time in Israel's history when they're the divided kingdom there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and the king of the northern kingdom is named Ahab, and he is not a good guy. This guy is not getting his face put on money. He's not getting carved into a mountainside. This is not a good king. And there's a severe drought in the land, which has led to a severe famine in the land. And so there's a shortage of water, and there's a shortage of food. And to top it off, Ahab is an evil king, and he's introduced worship of other gods, and it's, he's drawn the people away from God. And so there's going to be a showdown. 1 Kings 18 is, is a showdown. Because what's going on with Israel at this time, and frankly what had happened at different points in their history, is they begin to absorb other gods and goddesses. They begin to absorb things from the cultures that they experience. All right, it's not that they rejected God outright and said, God, we don't want you. It's like, God, you're great. We remember that Egypt thing. That was awesome. Thanks for being super cool. But you know, hey, we're just going to cover our bases here. Because I don't know if you know, but there's a drought and like we're really struggling. And so we're going to pray to this goddess of fertility just to maybe our crops grow. And we're going to pray to this God of rain 
so that maybe, you know, some rain comes. We're just going to include those other things, right? It became God plus. So they didn't reject God. They just started adding other things to him, other things with it. It's like, yeah, we're just going to cover our bases. If, frankly, if you know another one, let us know the name we'll throw him into. That's kind of what's going on here. And the gods that they're talking about here, and one of them in particular is Baal. He's a storm god, rain god. And this has become a problem. And so there's a confrontation with, between Elijah, who's the, the prophet of the Lord. And we see that he says, listen, this, this has got to stop. All right. So he says, gather all the people at Mount Carmel. And so all the people of Israel come and they're there. And he stands up in front of them and he says, how long, in verse 21, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. He's saying, pick a side. The people were silent. He's challenging him to pick a side, though. And, and what's fascinating is it's not, not pick a side based on who you like more, what gods can do more for you, how these gods fit your worldview, what you can get out of it. That they're supposed to make this choice based on who is real. Who is real? If Baal is real, follow Baal. If God is real, if the Lord is Israel, then follow the Lord. But he said, who is real? He's laying this, this simple idea out in front of them. If God is real, then follow him. If he's not, then don't. We often want to live in the gray area between those two things. First thing we want to take away from the story is this, that God is truer. God is truer. Elijah is setting up this contrast with the people. He's setting up this, this confrontation and he says, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. He says, now bring two bulls, and we're going to prepare sacrifices, right? I'll make an altar, and I'll put my, my wood out, and I'll put, prepare my bull, and you, you do the same for you. But don't add fire to it. Don't, don't set it on fire. What we'll do is you call in the name of your God, and I'll call in the name of the Lord. And I like that he says your God, because he's like, oh, you call in the name of your God. <laughs> he's fake. And I'll call on the name of, you know, the real God. And he says, the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. And what's, what's another layer here that's interesting is responding by fire, really, Baal is a God of lightning. And so that was in Baal's wheelhouse, sort of that fire from heaven. And so Elijah's going, I'll spot you one. You, it's what your God is good at? Great. You can have that one. All he's got to do is what you say he does. Not a problem. And so this competition is set up here. This moment in front of the people of Israel is set up. We are much like the people of Israel here. We struggle with making our story, our lives, about us instead of about God and about others. It's so ingrained in us that it just comes out without us even trying. Sort of the nerdy academic way to talk about it is it's the influence of post-modernity. It's the breakdown of truth, the rise in moral relativism. And all that really means, it's just a fancy way to say that we have decided that we are the makers of our own truth, that absolute truth doesn't apply anymore, that I make my own truth, that I decide what's best for me, I decide what I need, I decide what works. I'm the judge, I'm the arbiter, I'm the one that makes those decisions. I want to set the pace. I want to work on the areas that I want to work on. I want to fix what I want to fix. And so we pick and choose what we want to follow based on convenience, 
are based on what we want or what we feel like doing. That's how we approach life. We like true things. We like true stories. We want people to be true with us, but sometimes we struggle with truth, particularly if it doesn't fit our worldview, if it asks us to do something different, if it requires something of us. We like truth that fits our worldview. There's a a thing for that. It's called confirmation bias. And it's this idea where we seek out facts, we seek out information, and we interpret it in a way that validates and supports our existing beliefs. The problem with that is we ignore details and we ignore a larger perspective and it means we can miss important information. If you want a real specific example of this, your social media feed has become an echo chamber of confirmation bias. There's even algorithms that are giving you more of what you want, that are giving you things that you read. And so we find ourselves locked into a perspective and a worldview without bothering to look beyond it and go, is this true? Are there other perspectives? Is there something beyond this? And when we apply this to God, what we're doing is saying, I get to decide what's right. I get to decide what I need. And I look to find that validated rather than have it challenged. The question we need to wrestle with is simple. It's not, do I like God? It's not, do I like God? It's, is God real? There's a lot of things I don't like, and that doesn't change their realness. Cauliflower, for example. (laughs) Not a fan. Doesn't make it less real. It's not, do I like it? Because when we make it about like, then we're saying that I get to decide what matters, and I get to decide what truth is. But if there is a God of the universe, if there is a sovereign creator, if there's someone in charge, then I guarantee you there are going to be things that I don't like. Because if he thinks exactly the way I do, that's concerning. Because there's going to be a lot of Netflix binging. God's going to ask things of me that I don't like, things that I know in my heart are good that I don't feel like doing. Like, for instance, pick an easy one, like loving people. There's times you just don't feel like it. Some people, that hit close to home, and I appreciate your honesty, because that's so true. It's like, I don't want to. I just don't want to. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying I feel good about it. It's just how I feel. It's not, do I like God? It's, is God real? That's the basic question we need to answer. Folks, nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. That's what a recent study said. The breakdown comes when many of them just don't think he should be telling them what to do. And and that's, that's an issue because if we're saying there's a God, if we're saying that there's a creator, that there's someone in charge, that there's someone who is over all of this stuff, doesn't he deserve my attention? Doesn't he deserve my obedience? How arrogant would that be to say, yeah, I believe there's a God, but he works for me. That sounds crazy. That sounds crazy. And you might be sitting here saying, well, of course, sure, there's a God, I'm on the same page, I'm in one of that that 90%. But the challenge for us is to not just say it, but to live it. Folks, if nine out of 10 Americans lived like they believed God was real, we would look like a different society. We'd be a lot less awful to each other. We're not living that stuff out. And before you go, you're right, other people aren't. Mm, You too. (laughs) Me too. It's all of us. It's all of us. We aren't called to know God and experience God and worship God, right, because of 
the community we experience or hope or blessings or what we get out of it, though it's important for you to hear me say, those are good things. We're called to worship God because he is real, first and foremost, because he is in control, because he demands that of us. The fact that we benefit him, the, the fact that it benefits us, the fact that in worshiping him, we find those other good things, that's the gravy. That's the icing on the cake. But when we go to God and say, I'll worship you because of what I get out of it, that's not worship. That's a trade. That's control. That's you going, what, I want what I want out of this. God is a jealous God. Not jealous the way we are, but God is jealous for our attention. God is jealous for our worship because God knows that he alone is real and he alone saves. Anything else we pursue instead of him will lead us to destruction, will lead us away, will lead us away from the life that we want to experience. God is truer. The story continues. Elisha tells the, the prophets of Baal, he goes, you go first because there's a lot of you. And, and you know what? You choose one of the bulls. And I think what he's saying is, listen, you choose, you go first and you choose the bulls. You can, you, you can choose the good bull. That's fine with me. I'll take the whatever you, let, you leave me. You go first. And so they do. They called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply. They danced, they, they hobbled around, they made these movements, but nothing happened. And at noontime, something happened. Elijah sort of entered into this, their, their experience a little bit. Elijah starts trash talking. And before you say, well, how do you know that? I mean, maybe, was it just maybe we don't get it? No, 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 no. Verse 27 says, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Elijah began to mock them. Elijah starts yelling, hey, you guys, shout louder. Maybe it's just not like he's far away. He can't hear you. Or you know what? Maybe he's thinking. He's just got stuff on his mind, you know? Or, you know, no, no, he's busy. That's what it is. He's busy. He's just got stuff, you know, like gutters. We all have those things, you know? Like he's got stuff to do. Or, or, oh, no, 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 traveling. He's traveling. Did you check his schedule? Are you sure he's in town? Are you positive? Or maybe he's sleeping, what time is it up wherever he is? Do you, is it morning? You don't even know. Did you, you didn't even check. Or another translation says, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Because, <laughs> you know, he had a bad burrito. And that thing just got to work itself out. He starts yelling this stuff out. And you know what I love about this? He's not making stuff up. We know from ancient texts, these are all things they associated with their gods. He's saying stuff that they believe. What kind of God do you have to like make an appointment with to get it, to make, you can get him on the line? Like that's not super impressive. I am all powerful Tuesdays from two to four and Thursdays from three to seven. He's using things that they think are true about their God going, yeah, that's a weak sauce God, guys. You know, nobody's embarrassed by that? You should be. So they started shouting louder. They cut themselves and they start bleeding as a, this weird way to, to worship and all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. But I love this. It says there was still no sound, no reply, no response. Prophets of Baal are still waiting for their God to answer, and he's not. I think a lesson to take away from this is be wary of the person who challenges you and lets you go first. Because they know something. They know something. And, and that should be concerning. But they, they miss that. And folks, I think sometimes we read the Bible like a physics textbook, okay? 
Wait, you know, and listen, if you're a physics fan, no offense if you love physics, I apologize. Let me rephrase. I think sometimes we read the Bible like I read a physics textbook. It's dry. It's a bunch of nu- like numbers and formulas. It's, it's just dry information. It's boring. I think sometimes we read the Bible like, like we read the Bible like this, right? We're like, then he said, fill large jars with water and pour the water over there. It's like, oh, goodness, I fell asleep. The, the Bible is a story and real stuff happened. This stuff is funny. A prophet of the Lord is sitting there accusing their God of not answering because he's in the bathroom. He calls them out for that stuff. Because what he's getting to is the idea that God is greater. That God is greater. He's drawing a a differentiation between an idol and a God, a fake God and and the real God. And for them and for us, idols are anything that we put in the way of God. And often it's stuff that's close to home. And it's not even stuff that's necessarily bad. The reason that they were drawn to the worship of Asherah and Baal was because they wanted their crops to grow. And so they figured if they added these gods in, then maybe that would help their chances. But it wasn't working. It wasn't working. And our idols may not look like a small clay figure that we put in a wall on a ledge in our house, but our idols are any of those things that we decide are equal with God, that, that deserve to be in line with him or even in front of him. And they can be good things. It can be things like your career or success or your relationship. For a lot of parents, it's your children. They become idols and it becomes all about them and that's all that matters and you want to spoil them and give them all, all, all they could possibly ever dream of and, and you want to pour into that and, and they take this place in your life that has moved them in front of God. And you might never say those words and you're certainly not going to tell them that. But maybe that's happening. Maybe that's happening. But folks, our idols always pale in comparison with God. Always, always. God is always greater, and he shows us that. He gets at those idols that we have by showing us how much greater he he is than what we're looking for. That we settle for less when we go, I can find this on my own, and God will get at those things and go, no, I want to show you what you were meant to know. And so sometimes we feel pain when those things are taken away, but that's not God trying to hurt us. That's God saying, I want to protect you, and I'm going to remove what you are focusing on so that you can see me. We see how foolish our idols look when we compare them to the real God. They look ridiculous in the light of day. What are you putting in front of God? What are the areas where you think you know better? Maybe it's out of pride and you don't need help and you can do this on your own or look at what you've achieved. Or maybe it's out of moralism in the sense that that you just, all that matters is doing the right thing. It doesn't even matter why you're doing it. Or maybe it's just simply self-centeredness and going, I get to decide what, what's best for me. What are those things you're putting in front of God? What are those things? The story continues. Elijah calls the people. He says, come over here. It's my turn. He takes 12 stones, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel from this this broken down altar and he restores it and he rebuilds it in the name of the Lord. And he digs a trench around the altar large enough to hold a lot of water and he piles wood on the altar and then he puts the bull on top of it. And there's some really cool language here because Elijah is, is trying to do something on purpose. He's using words that maybe don't hit us but would have hit these people. He's asking them to remember 
Because when he takes the 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes, when he prays later on to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's using what we call covenantal language. He's pointing to the covenant that God made with people, the promise that God made to say, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will protect you and I will rescue you and I will save you. He's saying, remember what God has done. Remember, you have lost sight of who God is, but remember, look back, remember his faithfulness. He uses that language to remind them And then he says, take four large jars of water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. Now do it again. Get four more large jars. Now do it a third time. Soak the wood. Soak the offering. Soak all this stuff. So much water that it fills the trench around it. Because he's making a statement. He's saying, I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to show you who is real once and for all. There is no way this could catch on fire on its own. You will see who is real. You will see who is real. Remember, this is a drought. Water is a precious resource. They're watching him pour this water out, going, what, what are you doing right now? But everything is soaked, and the tension is building. Imagine what it must have been like to be there. Maybe there's a low rumble in the air, like there's a storm approaching from far away. Maybe it's far off. Everyone is in suspense right now. There's anticipation. It's building to something. The people are eager to see what happens. They're waiting. And it's in this moment that Elijah steps up to the altar to pray. And he prays these words. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. What would it have been like to see that happen? to watch fire fall from heaven after Elijah prays, to fall on the earth and to burn up the, the offering and the wood and to the stones, to consume everything, to leave a black mark on the earth. There is nothing there. God has said, I'm not just gonna burn the offering. Everything is gone. That's how powerful I am. When God shows up, we notice. And God in that moment said, I am the Lord. I am real. And the people fell down on their faces and they worshiped God. Third thing we take away from this is that God is nearer. God is truer, God is greater, and God is nearer. Because think about this, right? There's 450 prophets of Baal and one Elijah. Prophets of Baal went first, Elijah went last. They probably took the better bull and they probably left Elijah with the worse one. They had a lot of action and intensity and effort in their worship. Elijah only had a couple minutes. They took nearly the whole day. Elijah offered a simple prayer. They got no response. Elijah got an immediate response. And again, remember, it's the storm God, the God of lightning. He can't even show up that way. So God says, I'm going to show up that way. God answered with fire from heaven the exact way Baal should have. He declared himself to be the true God by doing the very thing that Baal did better. 
powerful picture. And the confrontation here is not between God and Baal or God and the prophets of Baal, although they had a role in this story and an important one. The confrontation is between God and his people. That's important because the world sees and experiences the reality of God and his love as shown through Jesus, less through confrontation and more through the lifestyle and faith of his people. God wanted his people turned back to him, not just so they would worship him, but because of the influence, their worship, their relationship, their living out of this realness would have on the people around them. The difference, folks, was not in the enthusiasm of the worship or the devotion of the followers or the intensity of experience. The difference was in the one being worshiped. One was real and one was not. And God in that moment moved into their story and moved into their lives and and gave them what they needed, not necessarily what they wanted, because I think probably what they wanted was to be left alone because that's the easiest thing. Just let me do my own thing. Let me make my own world that's comfortable, my own rules, and just leave me alone. And God said, no, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to show up in a way that's going to bring you back. Because we can get disillusioned or angry with God when he doesn't do what we want him to do or what we think he should do, right? We begin to ask questions like, why isn't God doing what I want? Why is he answering my prayers? Why isn't he, he responding to me? Where's my fire from heaven moment? Oh, why haven't I had that? but we're making that all about us. We're assuming that God is distant, that God isn't engaged, that that God is far away, but he's not. God is nearer. That God is nearer. It's a misunderstanding of who God is that God somehow answers to us and, and makes my life how I want it to be. But folks, we can't have God be all powerful and also make him answer to us. That doesn't work. He can't be all-powerful and yet our slave. That doesn't work. If he is real and true, then following him means our lives need to look different. Is God real to you? We too often live like he's not. We live like our relationships are real, our desires are real, our pain is real, our struggles are real, but God is not. But God is not only real, God is near. God showed up in a way he did not have to, to bring his people back to him. God used Elijah to step in and intercede on the behalf of the people to bring them back to him. And that's exactly what he's done for us. When you say, where's my fire from heaven moment? We have all had that moment. At the very least, if only through Jesus, because that is God's ultimate way of showing up in the way we did not expect, that we did not deserve, in a way he did not have to, and yet he did for us. It's God moving towards us. Jesus stepping into time and living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. It is God's way of of interceding for his people, not just one moment in time, but for all of time. God is near. He is real and he is near. I was having lunch with a a young guy one time. We were just talking about his life and he had a a legitimately hard life, a, a difficult life. No relationship with his birth father. His relationship with his birth mother was terrible. She didn't want anything to do with him, so he's living with his stepfather. 
It's his closest family. He's involved in drug abuse and prescription drug abuse and, and doing what literally whatever he wanted. And his life was just crumbling. And we're sitting there and I'm listening to his story and there is just pain written all over his face and he has even a hard time articulating it or explaining it and he's really just saying, why is this happening? This doesn't seem fair. And I asked him, if you've done whatever you wanted and it hasn't worked out the way you wish, why not try something different? If you've lived like God doesn't matter, like God isn't real, and that has gotten you here, why, what if you lived differently? What if you lived like God was real? And in talking through that and, and in unpacking that and helping that make sense to him and working through what that looked like in his life, he sat in my car and gave his life to Jesus because he's going, I got to try something different. I have lived like God doesn't matter and it has not worked out. If God is real, then... Let me try that. Where are you? Is God real? Is God here to serve you? Or are you here to serve God? Is God real not just in an intellectual way, but is God real in a tangible, practical way, in a relational way, in a way that you experience daily? Is your life different because of God's realness? I love how this one guy says it. Blaise Pascal, it's one of my favorite quotes, says this. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once a man in true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. What he's saying simply is this. We have a hole in the core of our very being that we cannot fill on our own, though we try, that can only be filled by God himself by God moving towards us through his son, that we have a hole that we try and fill with all sorts of different stuff, with, with relationships and sex and achievement and stuff, and, and we try and fill that hole and it will never be perfectly filled. What fills that hole is God himself as he's revealed himself through Jesus. That God is real and has moved towards us so that we can experience him. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, my question for you is, does your life look different because you believe God is real? Because if God's real, that demands something of us, that asks something from us, but it also brings something to us. Does your life reflect that? Not just do you say it, but are you living it out? Is that true? Or have you strayed by bringing in other things into, into your worldview, like the Israelites? If God is real, our lives need to look different. That's hard for me too. I'm a perfectionist at heart and that's hard because what that, what that morphs into is me feeling like I have to earn God's favor. I have to earn God's love. I have to do everything right. And for me, living like God is real is saying, Jesus makes me whole. I can't make myself whole. And that's hard. 
and I, and I will slide back into, no, I got to do everything right, and I got to earn this. But when I live like God is real, I live in the freedom of the victory Jesus has won by saying, God, you ask for all of me. You don't ask for perfect me because you make me perfect. What does it look like for you? If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. So my question for you would be, what's keeping you from knowing God this way? Because we would want you to be overwhelmed by the reality that the God of the universe loves you, knows you, has moved towards you. He is real and he cares about you. You personally. Is there anything more hopeful than that? How is God trying to turn your heart back to him? Question I want you to take with you. How is God trying to turn your heart back to him? What's one thing that gets in the way? What is it for you? What's one thing that gets in the way? We have an opportunity this week through, through the five challenge to live that out in some practical ways to say, I want to live like God is real. I want to live that out. I, just wanna, I don't want to just talk about it. I want to live it out. I'll talk more about that as we close, but I want to let you know that, that that's a chance to do that. We show what matters to us in every action we take in every area of our life. My hope and my prayer for you is the same for me, that when we wrestle with that question, is God real, we will respond the way that Israel responded, by falling before God and saying, yes, you are Lord. 